You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. Everybody, this is Chuck Marone. Welcome back to the Strong Towns podcast. Eric Jacobson is senior pastor at First Presbyterian Church in Tacoma, Washington. He's the author of The Space Between Sidewalks in the Kingdom and numerous articles exploring connections between the Christian community, the church, and traditional neighborhoods. He is also co host of the Embedded Church podcast with our friend Sarah Joy Propay, and I'm an avid listener of uh, the Embedded Church podcast. Eric has been on the Strong Towns podcast before, so I welcome you back, friend. Thanks for coming. Thank you, Chuck. Great to be here again. I have to say, I feel bad because you originally sent me this book, or I got a copy of this book last April, or, or March or yeah. April, and we were planning to talk, and I, I had it at the top of the schedule, and then life intervened yeah. in, in a big way. So we are doing this kind of a year late. The whole pandemic probably interrupted a lot of plans for the book. Yeah. And in fact, you know, the whole concept in a way, we spend too much time on screens, we need more face-to-face. <laughs> it's like the pandemic like I'm not sure if the pandemic proved my point or like showed everything I was talking about was wrong. I was going to ask you this because the book is three pieces of glass, why we feel lonely in a world mediated by screens. You say in the book there's the sense that as a Christian, with God you're never alone. We kind of tested that in the last year in some ways, did <laughs> right. we not? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it really accelerated a lot of stuff I was talking about, but but probably changed the landscape a little bit too that needs to be revisited. Right. Right. Let's start with the first of the three screens, the car culture part, because I, I think that's the one that all these changed in the pandemic, but it's the one that I think was the most established that maybe the pandemic did an interesting number on. So, so, so Chuck, you've got a, an awesome audience that you have cultivated. And right away, I think your audience is going to resonate with the idea that the automobile has created some problems in terms of our way that we relate to one another. But without I, a doubt, yeah. Right. But you may need to know or that in some ways, trying to reach my audience, I was being a little bit sneaky in that my audience probably is aware of the fact that cell phones is this big problem that disconnects us from one another. And most of my audience probably is happily driving around thinking everything else is fine, the cell phone. So I was really trying to be sneaky in using the <laughs> cell phone as a kind of hook to get people who love their cars or think they love their cars to go back and go, oh, this whole, this whole like choosing screens over people didn't start with the cell phone. Like that's probably lost on your listeners, but I what? think that was revelatory for the ones that, read my book. I think you are not grasping my MO here because I'm doing I am doing the opposite. <laughs> yeah, because exactly. I'm starting with the automobile because I think that's the easiest in for my audience. So I exactly. appreciate Yeah, that. yeah. I just wanted to lay that out there just in case anyone straight onto this podcast that isn't normally one of your listeners. Like no. what the automobile is a problem? It's interesting because I do think uh we all have our own entree, so to speak, into this sense of isolation. And and one thing that I did really appreciate about the book is how it challenged. I mean, I, I found myself challenged in terms of, yeah, this is something I need to think about. Let's start with the automobile. Obviously people sitting single by themselves, commuting for hours. We kind of have this direct correlation between 
depression, anxiety, isolation, and the length of your commute. I probably added instability as one of the things, maybe not as easily measurable, but you know, the way we treat each other when we're driving, we, when we meet each other as drivers is very different from, you know, how we, how we interact face to face. Right. My wife will say, cause she has a rather long commute. Uh, she does three or four days a week and she'll say it's a good, like relaxing, calming down alone time, mm-hmm. but she's not been doing the commute for a year. And you know, she's still getting plenty of alone and downtime. I, I don't think she misses it. What have we given up with car culture? I mean, let, maybe just start there. Well, we've given up a lot of public civic interaction, you know, where we would sort of bump into each other and, you know, have a spontaneous conversation or even without the conversation, just an acknowledgement of our common humanity, which it's, it seems really intangible, but I think it's really important to building the social fabric. We've exploded our sense of space. So we've spread out and fragmented our relationship. So instead of having a overlapping relationship, and I, you know, I, I kind of live in a, in the exception to the rule. I, I live, my whole world's within a mile in a lot of ways between my um, home and my church and my, where I get my services taken care of. So, so when I talk to, uh, my banker, she might be my neighbor and she knows people from my church, you know, that, that all those overlapping relationships, but with car culture, we've really fragmented our communities. It's not just about how much time we spend in the car, but we've really fragmented. So we've got, you know, friends that we know when we have this hat on and different friends when we have another hat on and they don't overlap very much or they don't have to because they're so far away geographically. Yeah, so that's some of the things we've lost. I mean, obviously, uh, American culture, and I think, you know, to to the extent that I understand world culture, you know, many cultures around the world have leaned into the secular transactional nature of things. Yeah. You know, my yeah. relationship uh, with the guy at the gas station is that I pump gas and I pay him money and then, uh, you know, I, I buy a, a pop and and move on. And, and that's the extent of our transaction with each other. It does feel like as a culture, we're struggling with that maybe oversimplification of relationship and and transaction. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the things I try to highlight in the book is that, yeah, the different way we do relationships. And I talk about contractual and covenantal relationships. And that's where I get sort of my theology, part of my theology in there, because the the Bible is sort of filled with this covenantal idea that God is a loving God that makes of a covenantal relationship with us and a covenantal. So, so, Relationships can be contractual or covenantal, and there's a really a continuum between between the two. But a, but a yeah, a contractual relationship you have with your yard guy. You know, you pay him to mow your lawn, and that's all well and good. But as soon as that's not worth it to either of you, that relationship gets interrupted really easily. You know, you, you decide you're going to do it yourself, or he's not doing a great job, or he finds something else to do. You just break that off. You stop paying him. He stops mowing your lawn. Whereas covenantal relationships there's some expectations, but the relationship is really primary, right? And so even when things get a little bit dicey or or maybe you're giving more than you're getting, you stay in that because you're a commitment to the relationship. So, you know, for a long time, marriage was like a classic covenantal relationship. Like you would, even though your wife got really sick, you would stay with her, even though you're giving more than you're getting because you've made this promise to her. There's a, there's a number of covenantal relationships that, that we have, secular or religious that we make sense of, but our culture kind of wants to move towards the contractual. And so like when a divorce happens, 
what happens is you're, you're transferring what was a covenantal relationship into a contractual relationship. We're going to get someone to lay out exactly who's going to pay for what, who's going to get these parenting responsibilities done. And, you know, it works out, but it's not as, it's not as nice, you know, right. Whereas, you know, you can slide the other way too. You can have like a contractual relationship with a grocery store clerk. You know, you, every couple of days you're in there buying your groceries, you talk about your family, da, 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 da. One day, you know, you forget your money and you still got, you want to get a gallon of milk. And she says, Oh, just take it, you know, bring the money back later. I know you. You realize it's, it, there's more covenantal relationship got slipped in there. You got the relationship means more to you than just the exchange of you know three bucks for for your milk. In some ways, contractual relationships are simpler because it's more you know clear what we're supposed to do, but they're less fulfilling for us. And so um, our our culture wants us is leaning towards contractual relationships, and I think really in some ways to our own demise in a way, because we they leave us really lonely. If we look at a contractual relationship, you know, God hands down the thou shalt not steal. And yeah, yeah secular people, we have no problem with that law <laughs> right. because we would put that, make that as a secular law. There's a different feeling of having a bank error in your favor from U.S. Bank, this multinational, you know, corporation that you kind of feel is out to get you anyway. And, uh, you know, the, the clerk behind the counter making an error in, you know, giving you your change back in a Christian sense, they're both stealing, right? If you right, know right. them both and you, the right thing is not to steal, but there is a certain, if you say covenantal, there, there's a certain human relationship that we would right. naturally treat the latter different than the former, by leaning into the former, do we change who we are a little bit? There's a part of it that this is not an excuse for, for stealing. I do feel like part of the genius of God's law or, or a parish or a community is the fact that it does create this. Let me state it this way. When I was in the army, we had a saying that there's no thieves in the army. And there's no thieves in the army because we all lock our footlocker. So there was this kind of joint recognition that we are flawed as humans. And so we set up our society and our community here to all be brethren and all like care for each other. And we don't, in a sense, like tempt each other by leaving our wall lockers unlocked. Are you getting where I'm going with this? Or I, I'm, I'm... I think so. You kind of confused me with the lockers thing a little bit. I thought you were going a different, <laughs> well, I thought you were going a different direction. You like, take it. Like I, I think in some ways what you're talking about, the stealing from you know, generic, anonymous, uh, faceless U.S. bank versus your local teller. When we think about covenant, um, I kind of set us up with some of the more formalized covenants. But I think what you were getting at was also true. And that is we have an implicit covenant with one another as human beings. We sometimes miss that fact, especially when we're separated from one another by screens, <laughs> various kinds. But when we have a face-to-face -face relationship, even if it's not a real deep relationship, it's a light relationship like you might have with your teller or your grocer. Once you kind of recognize the humanity of one another, and I would say made in the image of Godness, that, that they have inherent dignity and inherent value, then yeah, I think it does tap into something where it's harder to steal. Uh, it's harder to uh, do something that would be unfair or violate their humanity in some way. Whereas we have an easier time doing that with faceless institutions. And so, yeah, I think, again, that, that to, to me speaks to you know, the value of um, cultivating local relationships where you can have face-to-face, -face, you know, not just 
one-off face-to-face relationships, but regular. You know, they talk about friendships are formed on um, proximity and, and, and frequency and, and uh, you know, a shared sense of purpose. But, you know, it's much easier to get that when you uh, build some of your life, if not all of your life, around a more proximate those proximate relationships where you can bump into each other over and over and over again. I think that stealing from U.S. Bank does damage to ourselves too. I think that is where I was kind of trying to go is is this idea that Jesus said, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. There's a certain hard work that goes with living in community, but it has these advantages long-term in that I, I hope or I sense that we become better people. Is that a yeah. is that a fair? No, absolutely. I think a thread throughout my whole book is this idea that these forces, these decisions that we've made from a societal perspective, you know, to prioritize the car as our form of transportation, to escape to the TV as a way of like, you know, getting around, not talking with our neighbors, and the, the phone is kind of this stopgap for those awkward moments at the grocery store, or waiting in line, you know, waiting to pick up your kids, where you might run into someone else. All these things erode something in our humanity. They do it slightly differently, each of them, and they, they do it in different ways. But yeah, they, they are er- eroding our humanity. That's part of the problem. We're, we're lonely partially because we lack significant relationships and we feel displaced from where we are, but we're also lonely because our, our character has been eroded. And we, we've, we're losing that drive to connect with people because it's, you know, the more you I, I think just friendship and that 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 ability kind of to sustain these these more covenantal relationships takes practice and it takes that strength of character that builds up over time. I think about often, you know, this idea that how am I connected to this person or how am I connected to this place? And you know, I, I go to the gas station that's a corporate ownership or the, the McDonald's that is obviously an international chain. And there's, there's trash in the, uh, you know, in the parking lot. And do I pick it up? I'm not connected to these people. You know, if there's trash in my neighbor's yard, I, I pick it up. I often, you know, ask myself, well, what, what is the difference? I mean, these are both, yes, one, you know, is kind of set up for me to not care about them and one is set up for me to care about them. Is there a difference a, and then B as I'm thinking about how to set up my place, should I acknowledge that difference? Should I seek to have the, uh, the, the one that in a sense kind of more, na- I, I don't have to fight as hard to be the best part of me. Right. You know, we, I think we all kind of would, would resonate with what you've just said. If we, if we make decisions, that uh, allow us to have much more of the kind of neighbor interaction that you're describing that bring out the best in me. That's, that's good in and of itself. But I think it can also have a spillover effect that we, it can help build in us the kind of um, strength of character that, that could also contribute to the public good, even when it's faceless. If you're in a community where you're just, that impulse is just, oh, I'm gonna pick up, it's not my trash, I'm gonna pick it up anyway. Um, if you if you do that enough, I would imagine that it would spill over a little bit into those faceless contexts. But I think that's what I'm trying to get at here. This is what I was a little bit struggling with: is this idea that we have made the faceless such a large part that the appendage to it is the personal. And I kind of right. feel like a society where the personal is the default, and then right. you append to that the faceless. We're different humans in that type of a realm, right? Right. Right. Yeah, but I, I guess what I was trying to 
starting to lean towards was this idea that what, what's happening when you're caring for your neighbor or being gracious towards your neighbor in the way you've described is, is you're cultivating your imagination, I guess, so that if that's the default, that's the norm in those other situations where, it's, where you have less of a connection, it's easier for you to imagine the face <laughs> or you know, right. it's easier to imagine some folks because you're more used to it. Um, whereas the, with the opposite, if you're just dealing with faceless context, it can start to, you can start to not care. You kind of cultivate a, a, uh, a, a, a kind of, uh, you know, lack of concern for the other that might spill over to your neighbor. You may not pick up the trash in your neighbor's yard because you've got, you've kind of convinced yourself that you are not responsible for anybody except for yourself. For me, one of the differences between Christianity in my youth versus me as a, a middle-aged person now a lot of the things felt like, why am I doing this? This is this ritual. Why am I repeating this practice over and over? Why am I uh, saying this incantation? I'm just mumbling words at this point. And at some point, some of those things become habits. They become ingrained to who we are and, and kind of how we would approach that faceless situation, right? Right. One of the things I bring up in my book that's real. I think it's kind of intriguing, and I'm borrowing from from someone else. Uh, but this idea of liturgy, yeah. so liturgy is like a, a a repeated practice that has embedded with some meaning, right? And we think of liturgies, like you said, of re, you know religious liturgies that we do over and over again that are formative, and that those are good. But this guy that I interact with in the book, his name is James K. A. Smith. He wrote a book called Desiring the Kingdom, and he did a really interesting thing talking about secular liturgies, and he talks about so. This this might be a, a bit a bit philosophical, but he talks about this this assumption that we make in the Western world that we are uh, we're decision making creatures. You know, we think with our minds, we make decisions, and then we do stuff. This is this is based on you know Descartes' uh, notion. I think, therefore, I am. The primary thing we are is thinking. We think and then we do. And Smith's contention is that's not true in most cases. We might every once in a while make decisions like that, but for the most part, we we do stuff and then we try to make sense of it. We're sort of led by our desires. We're led by, we're led by habits. We're led by patterns. And then we try to make sense of it. And so he thinks, you know, so often we want to have important ideas. We want to change behavior by teaching people important ideas. I mean, this kind of <laughs> probably pushes it what you and I both do with our podcasts and our, yes, our writings. You know, absolutely. we want to give people good ideas. So they make better decisions. So he's kind of accusing us of, being a little bit Cartesian, so, <laughs> right. but he's like, what, what's really shaping behavior are these liturgies. And so he talks about the shopping mall as a kind of liturgy. The liturgy is, is, is this, this, I can be redeemed by the acquisition of shiny new things. And he sets this up like the, he, he describes the shop, the typical shopping mall, this temple where you've got priestesses at these, these little, uh, these little alcoves that there's no clocks. You can't tell, you lose a sense of time. You go through this, you go around in a big circle and you grab things, this whole liturgy of, you know, redemption through acquisition. And that's what's forming. I mean, shopping malls, as we know, are kind of on the, on the skids right now. But, you know, you get the idea that that's what's really forming our habit. That's what's forming who we are. And so, you know, when you think about like from a religious standpoint, if you want to teach people to have different, a different set of values, you know, you, you preach a sermon, you, you, you know, catechism, you tell, tell them stuff. But Smith says that's not going to work. You have to, we have to have better liturgies, liturgies that really form us in a different direction. And so I took Smith's idea a little bit. And I, I, instead of having this stark 
dichotomy between secular liturgies that make us consumers and religious liturgies, liturgies that make us self-giving, you know, other, you know, selfless givers. I talked about um, these these secular liturgies outside of the context of the church that can form us in different ways. So I contrast driving our car as a kind of liturgy. You know, when I turn the ignition on my car, all of modernity, you know, gets expressed. You know, I'm an individual. I have power over nature. It's this uh, mechanized, uh, placeless kind of experience. This car was made in a factory that doesn't have any sort of local characteristics and all this stuff. Modernity is just formed in me the moment I turn the ignition on my car. I tune the music and the temperature yeah. and everything to yeah, exactly everything how I want it. me, the right. autonomous individual. So, so mm-hmm. the car is just like this, this factory for making autonomous individuals, modern people. And I contrast it with commuting on bicycle or on foot. And on, on, you know, either one of those, I have to uh, contend with nature in a different way. The hills become much more real because I have to exert more power to get up those hills. And I got to figure out what I can carry, what I'm not. I'm aware of the weather. I interact with other people, different, you know, all this kind of stuff. And so, th- so one of the contents I make is, is yeah, these, these, these are formative liturgies. And, you know, if I want to commute on foot or on a bike, that's going to form me differently than commuting in a car. But in order to do that, I need to, you know, buy my house or rent an apartment that's close to where I work. I need to, you know, maybe uh, advocate for my city to have mixed use uh, allowed in this area. I need to, you know, there's all sorts of different things that need to happen. And and one of the contentions I make is we can't, we can't choose as individual consumers all the time to make that choice. Society needs to get in there. As you, as you know, you know, the way we build our towns, whether sidewalks are available, whether bike lanes are there, are all going to be part of my ability to choose that more formative liturgy of commuting. And Americans don't like that. You know, we like to get our ethics all figured out. Okay, child labor is bad. So I'm going to buy a t-shirt here instead of buy a t-shirt there. And that fixes the problem. We like to make one single consumer decision. I'm going to buy a Prius. That's going to make me green as opposed to an SUV. You know, nobody likes to say... You know, that doesn't that doesn't solve it. it That's not a holistic. Right. You write a little bit along those lines about complexity. And I, I know you're inspired by Jane Jacobs. You mentioned her in the book. I've always found it kind of puzzling to me. And I this is going to sound not humble. So let me let me say it this way. And then you take it in a, in a better direction. When I've read Jane Jacobs, I walk away with this sense that we should have this incredible amount of humility about the places we build and their capacity to shape us and us shape them. And I look out and I hear a lot of people, even in my own professions, you know, planning profession and and, and what have you, speak of, of her work in this way and then have it manifest in ways that are not Jacob's like or or not really embracing complexity. Can you talk a little bit about how her thinking has 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 informed you and 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 maybe what that interaction is between the place that we shape and the the place that shapes us? Yeah. What what probably impresses me the most about Jacobs is is her awareness of complexity, but just that yeah, like you said, it's humility that um there's a logic at work that I may not fully understand. I think that's a really compelling idea. I don't want to presume when I'm in a new setting that I understand what's going on. It takes some time. You know, she, it took her a while. In fact, I'm reading her biography right now and it took a while for her to to figure this out. Like she had to get a tour, um, tour of uh, one part of New York city from what William Kirk, the, the 
the Episcopalian priest that 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 took her around, and and he was the one I think that first helped her understand like this really complex thing. It's, it, to one observer, you see chaos, but to a more informed person, you see the the rhythms at work. And I, I love that that notion. In my you know my graduate work, we sometimes talked about appreciative inquiry, and that is uh, instead of going into a context and looking at a problem and proposing solutions, appreciative inquiry is first says what's working here. And how can I better understand it? Um, and then maybe from there, we can start to think about the things that aren't working, but really spending that time to figure out what's working. Um, yeah, that's, I guess that's humility and um, just an openness to how we have to go in as a learner, not just a, a, the guy with the, with the solution. How does parish life interact with this idea of, you know, both, uh, both, I think complexity, but also like this, the windshield culture, it, it, I'll give you a little story as a, as a preface. I first went to Italy over two decades ago. And as a Catholic, I was very much looking forward to the idea that I would be entering into a Catholic culture. And, you know, this is going to be my first time ever, you know, walking down the street with people who will be praying the rosary and people who will be living a Catholic life. And wow, was I wrong, (laughs) you know, a very, very secular place. But yet, you know, when we look at it from a design standpoint, cities that are designed to be much more human scaled, obviously, than anything we have here. What is the idea of a, of a parish? Yeah. And, and and how do we as humans, are we called to kind of interact with those of us that are Christian interact with our parish, but what's the interface between that and our broader community, the, the secular parts, the non-Christian parts of our community? It, it seems like there's a, there's an extension there. The windshield culture really undermines in a lot of ways. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great question. It's it's a complicated question, you know, because parish is a really wonderful word. It's got a, a rich history. And, you know, we can we can sort of imagine a time centuries ago where where parish was really fundamental to our sense of identity and place. You know, the church in the center was where we gathered together, where we, you know, everything happened kind of a, around that. Now, obviously lots have changed. Secularization has changed, but also pluralism. And so, you know, my church is in the center of my neighborhood, but, you know, it's one of a dozen churches. So not everyone's going to come to my church on a Sunday morning. I mean, they all see it. And my people, you know, I don't know what percentage come from within a mile or five miles, but it's not, it's not more than 50%. A lot of people are going to drive in uh, just because the American expectation of, you know, we're going to go with the youth programs good, or we're going to go where we resonate with the theology or the preaching style or whatever. You know, right. we so so it's not a mine is not anything like a pure parish. That said, I one of my tasks is to help my people, my congregation, think about outside of our walls. We want we want to care not about not just what happens within the walls of our church, but we want to think about the surrounding community as our parish. The parish kind of refers both to the the church as an institution in the building, but the wider community around it, not super wide, but just neighborhood wide. So I want my people to think about the good of the community as as part of our responsibility. And also, I want to help our community think about their connection and their cohesiveness. I'm in my mind as a as a as a Christian, as a pastor, I'm thinking parish. I don't say that 
semi-banker, you know. <laughs> so in addition to being the pastor of my church, I'm also on the board of our Neighborhood Business District Association. And so our job is to help bring cohesion and a sense of place and identity and belonging. You know, a lot of those folks are doing that because that's going to help cultivate, you know, loyal customers. That's going to help their bottom line. They've got all sorts of motives for being there. But I'm always thinking, yeah, that's important. But, the, but what's really important is that sense of belonging, not because it brings you guys customers, because it's good in and of itself. And I'm thinking, you know, that's parish work to some extent. You know, we're planning a, an art and wine walk in the fall and we're planning uh, to decorate for Christmas because, you know, it makes our place kind of special. We're going to do, you know, I think about parish as just helping a constrained neighborhood area, help the people there to, to feel a sense of belonging and connection to one another. Because I, th- I do think that's really missing. That's what's absent in our culture, both, you know, because of the car culture, but also, you know, just the internet and just the, our ability to connect virtually anywhere in the world. Places, in some ways, seems like it doesn't matter anymore. But I, but I think it matters more than ever because it, it's really fundamental to our sense of well-being and identity. I do feel like one of the things that the pandemic has done. You know, you and I did a podcast a couple of years ago, and we did it over the phone, and it was it was very nice to talk to you. But this is nicer. I've been able to see yeah. you. Right. Yeah. And I, I feel closer to you and I feel uh, like this is a more intimate conversation by the fact that I can see your face and see your smile right. and see your reaction yeah. to things. Where have you seen technology help create better community and, and, and bring us together? And where is that challenged? I think it's clear we're not, you know, unless something really dramatic happens, we're not going back. How do we be fully human? How do we be more human? How do we be, uh, you know, the types of people that we are called to be in a society where we're inundated with technology as a, as a means to interact with other people? Yeah. And that's, that's a great question. It's one that's kind of evolving as, as we go, as things get better, as we get more, we all, we all became a lot more competent on Zoom. This would have maybe seemed insurmountable three years ago. Oh, we have to set up a virtual what? You know, we would have been, yes. now it's like, of course, I've got like five more of these today. Right. And so, you know, we've gotten more, more conversant in it. So my take is my fundamental conviction is that we were made for face-to-face uh, approximate relationships. That's, that's where we're most satisfied when we can connect at, in that level and technology can help us with that. We met each other virtually, I guess, right? You know, I probably emailed you or I can't remember how we first met. You know, we had a phone interview, but I think I also ran into you at a couple CNUs face-to-face. We chatted CNU, yes. Yeah, and so that was, to me, that's that's the that's the path. So I think ultimately, and there could be exceptions. I don't want to be too extreme here because there's, there's a lot of, you know, extreme situations that might be challenging. But for the most part, what we really need is these face-to-face human contacts. And, the, and technology can help us you know, especially when we've got kind of somewhat rarefied interests like you and I do that, that don't connect everybody in our, you know, not everyone in Tacoma is going to be as interested in these things as, as people, you know, in various places. But I can connect. People find me via technology. I get emails all the time. Hey, I read your book and I'm really interested in this. We have a little conversation. But then my goal is, okay, where do you live and when am I ever going to be there? I'd love to sit down and have a cup of coffee with you. I'd love right. to actually. So for me, the payoff is when you can have a face-to-face contact, you can cultivate a relationship that does come about in that way. And then once you can establish some face-to-face contact, 
So technology can help facilitate that. We can meet each other easier so that we can set those things up. And then once you've established that contact, I think you can continue to coast off that face-to-face contact. Technology can allow you to continue those things. Like a lot of people right now are having Zoom meetings with their family, whereas normally they'd get together you know, periodically and see their family face-to-face. They can't have that. But these Zoom meetings, I think, are great. I think they're really helping, uh, you know, but you already have that established face-to-face contact. So what concerns me is, maybe I just don't have the experience with it, but people who form relationships that are only exist, you know, electronically, and they're never going to connect with each other. And a lot of, and a high percentage of their friendships are those kind of friendships. That kind of concerns me. That feels like it might kind of work, but it feels like it's going to be less satisfying. It's going to be more vulnerable to disruptions. You know, it's easy to ghost people in technology. Right. You know, just well, I'm just going to stop responding to your emails and, you know, we'll lose track with each other. Let, let me throw this one at you. I do feel like there are times online where I am Chuck Marone, the human being who is Chuck Marone. And there are other times online where I feel like I am Chuck Marone, the the avatar of of myself that I have created online. How important is it from a Christian standpoint, from you know, as a pastor, that the people in your congregation are the in touch with the authentic them, as opposed to the you know the avatar of them, or or, or where is the avatar better? Sometimes I, I don't know. It's it is a very strange thing because Twitter is a strange place. For example, where I think people tend to be coarser than they are oh, absolutely. as yeah. humans, right? We, you brought this up earlier in car culture. There's a, a very funny um, Louis C.K. bit where he talks about driving and then compares that with standing in an elevator with someone and how when someone cuts you off driving, you'll scream and yell profanities at them. But if they bumped into you in the elevator, you you would not get in their face and do the same thing. You, right. As humans, you would be different. I see with my daughters who are this in this teenage, you know, very vulnerable years, there is a there's obviously an authentic person that they are that I feel intimately connected to. And then there is this projection of a person that they're trying to, you know, be outside. And when I'm I'm trying to help them reconcile that, I also have to turn around and look at my own so, social media postings at time and recognize, you know, that how important is it? And I guess as a pastor, how important is it in terms of a congregation that we are our authentic selves as yeah. good and as ugly as that may be at times? Yeah, no, absolutely. Let me, let me answer with kind of a story that predates technology, but I think it, it not te- technology in general, but these technologies. Mm-hmm. So I, it's a story from another pastor that I, that I know who's written a bit. His name is Randy Fraze. And he tells a story about, so part of, Church culture, especially evangelical church culture, is small groups. We're gonna we're gonna form small groups where we meet with people, study the Bible, share about our lives, pray for each other. But it's kind of a, one of the one of the goals, I guess, is accountability. It's gonna help me stay true to who I'm called to be and not who I might become. You know, I'm gonna so we're gonna I'm gonna tell about things I'm struggling with, and you're gonna ask me hard questions about how things are going and all that kind of stuff. And that's that's the purpose of small groups. So this guy. Randy was was uh, at a you know he was part of a small group as, as one of his churches, but it was one of these small groups that had affinity-based small groups, which means you're gonna you're gonna get together with people who are demographically like you because you're gonna have more in common. So he's you know a young father, and uh, he's gonna go meet with other young fathers about his age in order to get that affinity together. They have to be from different parts of town, right? So he drives to his small group. He drives 12 miles to small group, 
sits down. And when it comes to like sharing, he's going to curate what he shares. Like he's going to say, oh, you know, he, he gets to choose how much he shares or how much he holds back. And, you know, he kind of, you know, does a little bit of that, what you're describing on Twitter is he, he they get a version of him that he wants to share to them for a variety of reasons that he may not even be aware of what he's doing, right? He realized that was it wasn't a very significant experience for him for whatever reason. And so he switched his model to more proximity-based small groups. So he's going to he's going to be in a small group now with his neighbors, people in his neighborhood who happen to be part of his church. He's going to be in a small group. And then he realized like when it came to that accountability piece, he didn't have to share who he was because they lived near him. They heard him yelling at his kids. They heard him you know, they saw him do all that. And so he couldn't hide from them. And that was a much more formative experience for him. And I think that maybe kind of answers your question to some extent is when we're in control of how much we want to share, how we want to cultivate ourselves, it's really not us. We can form this real gap between our authentic self and our presenting self that can, can make the authentic self erode quite significantly without anyone being aware of it. Because you can maintain the public persona of Chuck Maron you know, for a long time, even if your authentic self is is having some serious crises going on. And so I do think it's important to cultivate relationships with people who know us and not only the us that we want to share with them, but the us that they witness and see on our worst days. I guess I want to be clear. It's not always to challenge us to be better and try harder, because I think that can be kind of exhausting. But there's something about people who know us, know our flaws and still love us that's really powerful. <laughs> maybe as I've gotten older, you know, when I, maybe in my 20s and 30s, I wanted to aspire to be a better person. And that's still kind of what I'm after. But now I think my aspiration has switched. I want to be loved and accepted for the jerk I sometimes am. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, I, I do uh, I do watch my daughters because, you know, teenage years is a years of, of wanting to be accepted and wanting to, yeah. you know, figuring out how do I navigate this world in a way that other people will accept me obviously as a father. And I think this kind of informs being a father of daughters has informed me in terms of how I should feel in my relationship with God and, and how, you know, understanding how I may be observed uh, the idea of loving them for all their faults and yeah. all their shortcomings uh, is a really powerful thing. And, and obviously yeah. I do that as a father, uh, and I love them almost because of their faults in many ways. Right. It seems like if I did not have that personal connection with them, if my connection was even 50% virtual or, or, or 80% virtual, that, you know, not only would I know them less and I think have less of an opportunity to love that aspect of them, but I would also, you know, maybe be less honest with them about who I was. Right. Right. Yeah. And I think I think you're exactly right. And I think that in some ways is getting back to our initial where we started this conversation. But that's where covenantal relationships are so important. You have a covenantal relationship with your daughters. You're going to you're going to accept them. You're going to love them regardless of their flaws and your interaction with them. They're going to learn their lovability, their their acceptability from to some extent from you. That's going to give them a fair amount of confidence. And it's going to help them form their identity in ways that are healthy and stable. Because the reality is, I mean, we're not simply good and flawed, but a lot of our flaws are part of something really good. You know, <laughs> it's counterintuitive. When we're left to ourselves outside of the 
those kind of loving covenantal relationships where people are just, you know, pouring acceptance into us, we tend to think we're only going to be accepted if we conform to what people expect from us. And that's where we start to cultivate this presenting self that's very different from who we really are. And it really not only corrodes our authentic self, but it allow it doesn't allow us to really discover the goodness of the, that, that authentic self. So, yeah, I think it's super important that we have a lot of relationships that aren't Twitter-based uh, with people, and not just relationships in general, but relationships with covenantal relationships with people who love and accept us. Let me ask this then about this sense of community, because I, I feel like the tension that we have you know, today in the U.S., and I, I experience this too, I, I, I feel this very much, is that uh, on one hand, we've almost set like the ideal as being the, Patrick Deneen calls it the self-making self, the idea that I am an entity unto myself and I create my own path, my own vision, my own destiny, um, which is a not a Christian way of viewing things. What is the uh, community way of viewing the self. And how is that maybe more in touch, even from a secular standpoint, with how humans are actually wired to be, yeah. as opposed to, you know, th this individual with a smartphone and a car and a television that mediates their own life like a thermostat? Right. Yeah. So I think in, in some ways, this is a little bit stark, but in some ways, you could describe the current state of the secular culture is saying. So the self is essentially freedom from relationships in the secular understanding, you know, insofar as I'm constrained by the people who put expectations on me, my parents, my, you know, that's, that's limiting my discovery of who I am. I'm supposed to be free from others. And I would say the Christian understanding, not exclusively Christian, there's a lot of religious communities and a lot of broader cultural movements that would say this as well, but we are free uh, for relationships, that what it means to be a healthy human is to be in relationship with others, in healthy relationships with others. Now, of course, relationships can get toxic and they can get abusive. And there's all sorts of relationships that tear us down that we need to be wary of. I don't want to be naive about that. But the goal is that we have good and healthy uh, relationships. And so our understanding of who I am is really can't be separated from the community that I'm a part of and the story of that community and, and all the larger things. I would add that that's all informed by our, you know, from a religious context, that's informed from our relationship with God, that we're, you know, we're created in God's image. We're created in a particular way, that there's a purpose for our lives that we're, that we're discovering, but it's all kind of done in the context of community. When we talk to people about strong towns, a lot of times the entree is this, uh, fiscal insolvency of cities and the budget and and all this. Yeah. And and we talk about, you know, how it's difficult to maintain roads because we've overbuilt and we have less productivity. And it becomes a, a, almost yeah. an, like an accounting conversation. When we dig into it and we start to talk to people like, why are you here talking to us? Why are you part of the Strong Downs movement? Why are you in this conversation? We inevitably get back to this sense of connection to place and connection to others. How much is that wired into just who we are? How much of that is kind of the default? How much do we lean into that as opposed to fight that as humans? Yeah, I, I, well, I think it's a lot. I mean, I think we, 
one of the things I do in my book is establish a kind of anthropology, like who we are, who, essentially, what's distinct about us. And I talk about humans as being embodied. You know, we have bodies. Uh, a lot of technology is supposed to fix that problem, like allowing us to transcend the limits of our body. But I, I think we, in a lot of ways, need to just, you know, I think it's really good that I'm going to ride my bike to work in just a moment and go up a hill and, you know, be aware of all that this little colder today. I got to put on a, you know, extra scarf or something like that. And so, so we're embodied. There's it's not our, our bodies aren't a problem to be solved, but they're, they're how we interact with the world. We're, in, we're um, embedded in place. And so, um, you know, it's one of the ways that uh, I make meaning for my life. One of the ways I, I thrive is to be really connected to the, the, the context and, and all those kinds of things. And then we're, we're in story or we're, in, we're narrated. We have, we're part of a larger story. It's not just about, you know, kind of what I'm going to do today, but I'm, I'm playing a part in a larger drama of a story. My life has meaning uh, because of my role there. So, so all those things are, I think, super uh, important and we can, we can deny those things and we can, we can cobble together other ways to make sense of our identity, but I think they leave us kind of hollow uh, in a lot of ways. Um, so yeah, I don't know if that quite answers your question, but no, it does. It does because I, I I do feel like you know one of the themes that does connect us, whether it is you know our politics and what we're called to do uh, politically, whether it is as consumers, which is you know what we're called there, or whether it's you know from a, a human realm, it, it seems like the way we motivate people is to call them to higher truths, right? To, to, to call them to be part of something greater than them, you know, vote for this person because you're joining with all these other people to do this important thing. And we seem kind of wired to do that. Yet when I look at even my own church, uh, you know, we spent the last couple of years doing an addition onto the church. And that was great because we called everybody to participate in that and, 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 you know, donate to that and pledge to that, to be part of that discussion. And a big part of it meant buying up half a dozen homes in the neighborhood, tearing them down to make more parking. Um, It's interesting because I see these tools that we have, the car, the TV, the cell phone, all as, uh, devices to call ourselves to these greater, they're in a sense tools and mechanisms that are used in that way. But when they're not grounded in a place, when they're not grounded in who we are as people, like any tool, they can be used for for good, they can be used to our detriment. I, I, I don't know if, if, if you're thinking of this has evolved at all in the last year as we've watched, because I'm assuming you did virtual church for a while, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder if you wrote three pieces of glass today, how much, you know, what, what an appendage to the book would be based on what we've learned yeah. in the last year. Yeah. Well, I think, I think we have, I've learned a lot. It'll be really interesting to see what happens when we return to normal, whatever that is, when we, you know, when we feel relatively safe from, from the virus, um, how we adjust, because some people won't come back to church. <laughs> We're going to keep up our live stream because we got really good at it. And, right. you know, that really solves a lot of problems that predate the pandemic. We've, we've been doing get to church. Yeah. Church of the Holy uh, sectional is what we call it. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> so I, I think it'll be interesting to see on the, on the one hand, I think it's, it's, um, it's made us more aware of some hungers that we didn't know were there for human community. I mean, people 
misgather a lot of our people misgathering for church and they don't miss anything in particular they don't i wish they missed my sermons more but that's not it that they can hear my sermons online i wish they missed the music more or whatever but they just miss being in the room together they miss the physical presence of one another i think that's a good hunger to be aware of and i hope we don't forget that soon um, on the other hand some families with kids at different age young family young kids and all that kind of stuff really like being able to just watch church from their living room, participate that way and have their, the mess of their family, you know, and they may continue that. My hope is that one thing it will do is will allow people to be more consistent in gathering with the community. It used to be, you know, 40 years ago, a good church member came to church three times a week. You came Sunday morning, you came Sunday evening for Bible study, and then midweek, the meal and programs or whatnot like that. And now, they say a good an active church member comes like three times a month or maybe three times a quarter. You know, like, right, right. So we've really slowed down our a lot of, you know, soccer practices now are on Sunday or we have got cabins that we got to go to and all these. So there's a lot of distractions, but one, this might be a naive hope, but I hope that the fact that it's really easy, we've learned how to really tune in that when people are out of town or when they're at their summer cabin, they can still tune in and be more frequent because that's part of connection too, is the frequency. It's not just proximity, it's frequency. So somebody can participate in church activities or they can be on committees or be part of Bible studies or midweek, but they can zoom in. Um, that might allow people to have more points of connection using technology to do so. But I do hope that we, you know, we really do uh, get back to face-to-face and people can remember or realize how valuable that is to us because we went this year without it. I want to ask you one last question. And when I was in Italy, I had a chance to to go to some of the places where like early Christians would gather. It was, you know, these little caves and little rooms and stuff. And it's very interesting. I, I, I think there's a part of me and I, I'm wondering if there's a part of you that sometimes idealizes this experience, this idea of living in such an intentional way that in a sense, your day can be focused on all of those things that very much matter. And I, when I think back about these early Christian communities and, you know, the way that they would sacrifice for each other and, and own things in common and what have you, I try to remind myself that this was also a very fragile construct and it didn't always work. And, you know, we're right. getting kind of an idealized version sometimes of, of places that did. I find myself longing for, uh, you know, a, a human environment and a, and, a, and a place that is more, uh, has that greater sense of connectedness to each other. Do you feel that ever? And do you encounter that? And, and do you find that that is a, a fleeting thing or a, a, a very real thing? How, how no, would... I think it's, I think it's real. I think you're, you're tapping into something that, you know, exists historically, but also I think, you know, is, is, Maybe not just an, uh, an ideal for us, but something that people aspire towards, some sort of greater connection. There's, there's kind of some experiments going on, I guess, within the Christian community. So they go by various names, but one of them is missional community. Okay. And so it's a little bit of a spin on this idea of small group, which is much more of a program of the church. But missional community is this idea. A lot of churches are kind of forming these, these informal, they're larger, they're like maybe 25 people, and they commit to sort of cultivating the kinds of relationships you would normally have with your extended family. So 25 people, 25 to 40, maybe would be the ideal number. So larger than the 12 person or eight person small group, 25 to 40 people in a missional community. And they're going to 
uh, gather at least once a, a week for a meal and some Bible study and some sharing of life, but they're also sort of covenanting to, to live life together. They're going to, they're going to, and the idea is, so we actually had one of these going before the pandemic for a couple of years. And it was a really interesting, it was a mix of older and younger people. They met in our house and this sounds stressful to, to a lot of people, but they had dinner at our house once a week, 25 to 40 people having dinner at our house once a week on a Wednesday. And what makes it work is because it's the extended family, we took turns cooking the meal. So they come to our house, they cook the meal. And, and the, 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 one of the litmus tests of whether you've achieved it or not is whether you can take a nap while they're, while they're in your house, you know? <laughs> which sure. is true. I would you know, be coming home from work and I, sometimes I, I get up early as we talked about. I also live in a household that stays up late. So I oftentimes, I'm a big napper. Okay. And so you know, it'd be like 4.30 and we're going to start our thing at 5.30. I'd you know, take a nap on my couch in the living room and someone, they, none of them knocked on our door. They just walked in, they started making dinner and I'm asleep on my couch and they clean up. Everyone helps to clean up and we all do stuff together. And it was, it's been a really lovely kind of thing. I mean, we don't share all of life together, but the idea is that we would, you know, if somebody's going to Costco and say, Hey, you know, send a text to everyone. Does anyone need anything? You pick stuff up and you just kind of, part of it is it, whereas most church programs add one more thing to your week, mm-hmm. you know, Oh crap, I got to go to this thing. And I, I'm, I'm supposed to actually be at my kid's ball game. I'm supposed to, you know, it kind of, it kind of pulls away from some of your other commitments. The idea here is the missional community can also you know, be on the positive side. Like, oh, these are people that could pick up my kids from the ball game. These are kids, these are people that could actually watch my kids while I'm gone. Or, you know, like it very much like an extended family. When you've got your extended family all living close by, that puts a lot of demands on you, but it also helps you a lot because they're helping you out with life. So you're not too far off the mark. A lot of churches are playing with this idea of how do we live life in a more focused, intentional way that's not so uh, programmatic. So, yeah. I want to point people to the Embedded Church podcast. Is this your third season you're in now? I, we're I, just I, working on the fourth season right now. Yeah, working on the fourth season right now. I tend to listen to them when I'm out working in the yard or working in the garden. And yeah. I've always enjoyed you, of course, and I enjoy Sarah Joy as well. What's it been like working on that? Oh, it's been great. It's been super fun. Sarah Joy's, we're, I think we're really well suited for each other. You know, I'm, I'm a pastor with theological training and she's been in the development world uh, with, with, with a planning, some planning training and all that. So, and, and, and we just got a good mix of personality. It's been really fun for us to explore. I'm a pastor, but I only have my own experience to deal with. And I, I write, you know, abstract ideas, but it's been really fun to interact with other pastors and find out kind of what they're doing on the ground. So that's been super fun. I'm super excited about the next season though. We, cause we've, we've been trying to make this work from a funding standpoint. We just got a, a partnership in place with uh, a group out of Duke Divinity School. So they're going to fund season four and five. And we've got some folks there that are partnering with us to help find new guests and try to, you know, refine our identity a little bit. So it's going to be a, it's going to be fun to see how it develops this next season. Wonderful. Well, I would strongly recommend it to people as well as the book. Uh, it's three pieces of glass. Why we feel lonely in a world mediated by screens. Eric Jacobson. Thanks so much for uh, taking the time to be on the podcast today. Thanks, Chuck. I loved it. We'll talk again soon. That sound good? Yeah, sounds great. Okay. You take care. All right. Take care. See you, Chuck. Bye. And thanks, everybody, for listening. Keep doing what you can to build a strong town. Take care. Taking risk is a necessity to becoming rich. It's also a necessity to go bankrupt.
Bill, 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 Bill. That's the story. They know that America's one big pothole right now. Just to echo what you said, there are no silver bullet solutions. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. Who made this city? The window is not always open, but if nobody's pushing, then once the window opens, there'll be no chance to go through. I like you. I like your vision of the, of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit, Agenda 21. Yeah.